you were a Falcons fan, you probably had a very different reaction uh, to that moment than the Eagles fan. And so I apologize for maybe being a little biased in that. But the best games, regardless of what sport it is, they have this moment in time, this, this one moment where it really hinges on everything. The whole game or maybe the whole season kind of hangs in this balance of this one moment. And for the Falcons and the Eagles, it came down to a minute and five seconds left in the fourth quarter on the two-yard line. The Eagles up by three, and it came down to this one pass. And if the, the guy catches it, then the Falcons go up and there's no time left on the clock. The Falcons head to the Super Bowl. But if he misses this one thing, this one pass, then they go home. And it really does, for them, all come down to this one moment, this one thing that is so crucial, this one pass, that, that all the hours of practice, all the workouts, all the stuff in the, the games before, all of it boils down to this one moment in time. And it hangs in the balance, whether he's going to catch it or whether he's not. And this morning... We're, we've reached one of those moments. We have been through the book of Proverbs. For you guys that have been with us, for you guys that are visiting with us, we've been studying through the book of Proverbs, goodness, I think since January of this year, maybe even before that. But we've been walking through the book of Proverbs, covering all these different subjects, and now we've come to chapter 30. And it's not the last chapter. We've already been to the last chapter. We kind of jumped around. Now we're in chapter 30. In chapter 30, the first nine verses really are this pivotal moment where it really all comes down to this. This is the crucial theme. These are the things that are essential. That if you miss this, then you really miss the whole thing. That it doesn't matter how great you think all the rest of it was. This is crucial. And so all the other stuff that we work through through this book, the words will not heal, the parenting will not be any better, the budgets won't be any better, they'll all be a mess. All the wisdom that we've sought after in studying this book will all be for nothing if we miss this, because this is what the whole book comes down to. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to uh, invite you to join me in Proverbs chapter 30. We're going to read the first nine verses, and it starts off with this. Verse 1 says, The words of Agar, son of Achan, that oracle, a man's oration to Ithil, to Ithil and Ucal. Verse 2, I am more stupid than any other man, and I lack man's ability to understand. I have not gained wisdom, and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. Verse 4, Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in a cloak? And who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Don't add to His word, or He will rebuke you, and you will be proved a liar. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehoods and deceit, deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me, or excuse me, feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing in steel, profaning the name of my God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much, God, that you hold the stars. God, that you hold us. God, we thank you that in the midst of raging chaos across our world, God, you can calm us. So God, I pray in this moment 
that we are so completely overwhelmed by the God who holds the stars, who ties up the waters in His cloak, who catches the wind in His hands. God, in this moment, God, I pray that we are so overwhelmed by Your greatness that it changes how we live our lives so that we seek Your glory more than anything else in this world. God, in this moment, it comes down to this, that we will seek and be overwhelmed by You above everything else. And so, God, I pray that You speak. And God, I pray that we will listen in a way that we will be transformed from this moment on. So, God, I pray your voice be loud and our voices be silent so that we can hear you above all else, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was in seminary, one of the things they tell you is that the most important classes you're going to take are your theology classes. And back when I was in seminary, we had to take three different semesters of it. We had to take some uh, theology one, theology two, theology three. And, um, and they, they kind of are independent of each other, but they really do kind of build. Like they want you to start in one and kind of work your way to two and three, even though they kind of deal with different aspects of it. And I remember walking into my first theology class and it was probably one of the biggest classes I had. There was probably close to a hundred people there. And, um, I was sat down, and the professor walks in. He starts calling the roll, and he hands out our syllabus. And, and if you've ever been in a, a college class or a master's level class, and they give you this packet of papers. It's not just one page. It's a packet of papers that tell you, like, this is your whole semester in a nutshell right here. Right? And I remember like just looking over that thing thinking, I don't even understand what this man is asking me to do in these next months that I'm going to be with him. And he's finished going over kind of the, the, the course and what it was going to be. And then he throws up these PowerPoints presentations. And I honestly think I got to about slide number three before I was so confused. But I decided that at least this is just the intro day. And so I'm just going to keep my head down and I'm just going to write as much as I can. And I'm just going to chug through this thing. And so we finished class that day and I got up and I walked out. I remember coming back a couple days later and I'm like, all right, surely this is going to be better today. And so the professor walks in, he pulls up his PowerPoint presentation. There's no roll call and there's no syllabus. He just jumps right in. And I think I made it to about the second slide that day before I was just lost, right? And I remember sitting in that class and and this man was using like Latin and Greek, and he was using all these different words that even in English that I didn't know how to spell, much less what they meant. And he was talking about all these people that I never even heard of, much less knew what they thought or what they believed, or if they were good people or bad people. Like, are they light side, dark side? I don't know who these people are. Don't know anything about them. And I remember kind of like just for a moment glancing around the room and, and realizing like, I was the only one in that position. Like out of 100 people, everybody else was like honed in. They were focused. They were straight. I mean, they were just eating this stuff up. They were like, yeah, this is great. And I'm over here like burning up pencil lead, just trying to keep up with this guy. And nobody else had this smoke rolling out of their ears. Nobody else had this deer in the head like, look. And I was like, I must be the only one here. And I remember the thing he kept saying over and over and over in that class is like, well, this is all review because you guys remember all of this from your undergraduate degree. So this is nothing new. This is just stuff you remember from your undergraduate degree. Except there's a problem with that statement because I don't know about the rather 99 people that were in there, but I'm the one who was not 
an undergraduate religion major, okay? My degree for my undergraduate was in chemistry. So if you want to know how to blow something up, I'm your man. Come talk to me, okay? But when it comes to Jesus, we didn't talk about Jesus in my undergraduate degree, all right? We, we sure wasn't blowing Jesus up. That was for sure, okay? So had the man been talking about, like, complex chemical equations? Had he been talking about organic reactions or endothermic reactions? I might would have understood a little bit better, but... What he was talking about, I was completely lost. And I began to think about this passage and kind of understand a little bit how Agar felt when I realized that all of this whole, you should remember this from your undergraduate, my undergraduate was going to be useless to me in this class. I, I knew what it felt like when he says that all of my human knowledge, everything I built up to and learned to this point, it was failing me miserably at this point, right? And so that's one of the first things we see in this passage, that, that human knowledge is going to fail us at one point or another. In chapter 30, in the book of Proverbs, sorry, I'm still dripping from that song. Um, chapter 30 in the book of Proverbs is a little different because we've attributed most of uh, Proverbs to Solomon, all right? The wisest man in the world, the richest man in the world. But chapter 30 is not. It's not written by him. It's not collected by him. You see in verse 1, it tells us these are the words of Agar, the son of Akin, all right? And then this describes it as an oracle or as a prophecy. Now, here's the tricky part of it is these are the only, this is the only time these two guys are ever mentioned in the whole Bible, all right? We know nothing else about them except what this passage tells us, all right? So everything we can figure out has to be within these passages. One of the first things we want to do is we want to look at the guy's name, because in the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, names were significant. They kind of characterized who that person was, and it wasn't unusual for someone's name to get changed um, if they kind of had a different characteristic. So we look at this guy's name, and what his name, Agar, means, it means together or to pursue wisdom, all right, so get the idea that here's somebody who's spent a significant amount of time and energy really seeking after knowledge. But we want to read on and see how this worked out for him. All right? This guy has spent most of his life so much so that they named him after pursuing or gathering up knowledge. And so let's see how that turns out if we finish up in verse 1 and then move on to verse 2. If you're reading on in verse 1, it says, The man's oration to Ithel, to Ithel and Yukau. Right, now, if you've got a different translation, that last part of that verse may look totally different to you uh, than, than what I just read. So let me explain that to you, why your translation may be different. We, we have the Holman Christian Standard here on the, on the screens. And so what it does is what many other English translations have done. Right? They, what they will do is they will say, Agar is a person. His dad is named there. And so these other two words, these are probably his students, okay? Ithal and Yukal are probably his students. And so they've attributed is this is what he's teaching to his two students, all right? But that doesn't necessarily have to be the case because if you have a different translation that translates those two words, it doesn't keep them in the, in the Hebrew as names. It translates what those words actually mean. You see, what those words mean is ithel actually means to be weary or to be tired. Yukal actually means to be exhausted. And so one way, the re, part of the reason, so they've taken it. These aren't names of people. These are actually words that need to be translated. And so you may have a different translation that says that the man says, I am weary and worn out. I am exhausted. All right? Which fits very well with what comes in, in verse 2. So I'm a little more inclined to believe these are not people's names, but they're actually descriptions of what he's telling. I am weary. I am exhausted. I've spent all my time and energy pursuing wisdom, and it's worn me out. 
I've come to the end of my life or the end of myself, and it's left me with nothing. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I don't know if you've ever just felt completely exhausted where you have nothing left to give. I used to coach soccer, and we used to talk about leaving everything out on the field, and we had some, some players that would do that, that when the game was over, they just sat down. Because they had nothing left to give. They, they, in fact, if they didn't just sit down, they didn't even have enough energy to like, take off their cleats or their shin guards or, or their gear. They just sat down because they needed a moment to recover because they actually did leave everything, every ounce of energy there on the field. For some of you, it's not an athletic uh, pursuit that you're in. For some of you, it's just life that you have left everything to being a mom or everything to being a dad and, and you just have nothing left. And so for, for me, this is how I picture Agar in this moment that he is completely drained. He is at the end of himself, that he has nothing left in reserve. He's totally exhausted, that he's given everything to this pursuit of knowledge. Everything, every muscle and every fiber of his being, it's all gone to this passionate pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. But I want you to see in verse 2 how this turns out because this might shock you. You would think that the book of wisdom would tell us, hey, you pursued wisdom so hard that you got these great rewards. But I want you to see in verse 2, it's kind of a shocking situation. Verse 2, it says, I am more stupid than any other man. I lack man's ability to understand. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a house where we didn't call people stupid. In fact, I grew up in a house where stupid was the other S word that we didn't use, right? It was the bad word you didn't use. Now, people did stupid things, and that was okay. You could say that. But people were not stupid. They just did stupid things. But the Bible uses this word about five different times, mainly in the book of Psalms and a couple times here in the book of Proverbs. And every time it uses the word stupid, all right, um, it, it uses it in this context of I was pursuing God, but these people were not pursuing God. And so every time it uses this word, it's using it to describe people who are separating themselves and their pursuit of knowledge from God, that they're seeking knowledge and they're seeking wisdom, they're seeking understanding from some other source, some other way of understanding the world that's around them. And so they, they've kind of divorced God from the source of knowledge and wisdom, and they think they can gain it all from some other source. And for some of us, this pursuit of knowledge might be through scientific knowledge, that science holds the answers that you're seeking for. For some, it's the pursuit of psychological or sociological knowledge, that we can understand human behavior apart from God if we'll just be observant. If we'll just kind of sit back and watch, and, and people follow these same patterns, then, then we'll understand and we'll have all the answers that we need to know. For some people, it's a kind of this philosophical or this ethical knowledge that, that really humanity itself holds the keys to all the questions that you need. And so if humanity could just come together and work together, we could overcome anything. We would have all the answers we needed because humans are the best, okay? And for some folks, it's more than that. It's kind of this political knowledge that it's not humans themselves, but it's kind of governments that hold the keys and, and hold the, the answers to the world's problems. And if we could fix government, then government would hold all the answers that we're seeking after and all the questions would be answered. Except what Agar tells us loud and clear is I don't care what avenue you seek after knowledge. I don't care how passionately you seek after knowledge. What his words and examples should be so loud and clear to everybody this morning is that God has given us these amazing opportunities and abilities to pursue knowledge. But it doesn't matter how passionate you are or which avenue you take. If you're pursuing it apart from him, 
You are simply wasting your time and your energy. I want you to see what he says in verse 3. The reason he says, I am stupid and I lack man's ability, is because I have gained or I have not gained wisdom. I have no knowledge of the Holy One. You see, he describes himself that way because what he did, what he did is I've spent my entire life chasing after wisdom, chasing after knowledge, but I shunned God in the process. I turned my back on God, and I thought I could find all these other answers to all the world's problems and all these questions that I had. I thought I could find them apart from God. And what did it do? It left me exhausted. It left me empty. It left me chasing my tail. It left me trying to figure all this stuff out. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm empty. And all the stuff that I had, and I thought I had, boils down to nothing. So here's the words of wisdom. Take this from the whole book of Proverbs, that everything we've talked about through the book of Proverbs, without pursuing God, is useless. So we spent a couple weeks talking about budgeting. We spent weeks talking about parenting. We talked the friendships and marriage advice and, and words that heal rather than destroy. And the pursuit of justice. Take all of that and without God being the center of all of that, throw it all out. You're never going to be the parent that God intends you to be if you don't pursue God in the first place. You're never going to have the wealth that God intended without pursuing God in the first place. And so take all that wisdom that you think you have, the simple human wisdom, it's only going to leave you worn out and feeling exhausted if you don't seek after Him first. You see, human knowledge will fail us every single time. And so our only option is to pursue God. And when we pursue Him, we will be completely overwhelmed by who He is and what He does. You see, that's what He gets to in verse 4. Agar is at the end of himself, and he has passionately exhausted himself, pursuing knowledge and wisdom, and yet he's left empty and cold. In verse 4, he turns his attention to someone much bigger than himself. In verse 4, he starts asking these amazing questions, and I don't know if these are the questions that he pursued his, after his life. I don't know if these are the questions that he was losing sleep over at night. We don't know that, but, but these are some interesting questions, but what's really interesting to me is that he phrases them not in a what question, but almost all of them are in a who question. You see, he's turned his eyes off of things to someone. So I want you to kind of look with me in verse 4, and he talks about these questions. Verse 4, the first one, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Is there some kind of heavenly messenger that can give me the answers that I'm seeking? Is there some wisdom out there that's beyond us that we can figure out? So who can share with us knowledge that's beyond what we have? Is there somebody I can talk to? about these answers that I have. The next question, who has gathered the wind in his hand? When our kids were little, we used to have a big bay window in our house. And uh, one day we walked in the living room and, and our two girls were just kind of sitting there like reaching up in the air. And I remember walking into them doing this and trying to figure out what in, a, in the world they were doing. And so I almost just watched them for a while trying to figure this out myself. And so finally I asked them, I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're trying to catch these things. And at this point, I was a little concerned about my daughters because I didn't see things that they were seeing, all right? And so I, maybe I shouldn't been concerned for them. Maybe I should have been concerned for myself. But what it was, the light was coming through the window at just the right angles, and there were these little dust particles, all right, that were floating. And so they were reaching up trying to catch those things. And I remember they would try to catch it here, and then, of course, it would fly out of their hand. Then they tried to catch it over there. And, and so it was kind of, they did this for a little while just trying to catch these things. And, and so it's kind of this picture. They could never catch even this little bitty dust particle. And yet the question that Agar is asking here is, who can catch the wind 
in his fist? Who can hold on to the wind? Who can gather it up in his hands? And, and I don't know if you've ever tried to catch wind. You probably are not very good at it, just to be honest with you. But it simply answers this, this question, who can do this? Who controls the wind? And for you and I sitting here who hold God's word, we know there's only one answer. This is nobody but God. And so every time you feel the wind blow, know that someone is holding it and someone controls it. And you should be overwhelmed by the power that that God has. And then he moves on to ask another question. He says, who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who's captured the rain or who causes it to rain at times or who causes it to stop at other times? I don't know if you've paid attention to the news over this past week, but over the past week, there's been a hurricane that hit one part of our nation and it was spread all the way across our nation to cause massive flooding in the Northeast. That thing went right past us. Did you guys know that? Like, it just skirted past us. It flooded the southeast, and it flooded the northeast. And here we are, kind of in the midst of both of those, and it went right around us. Who controls that? Who, who sets that in motion, and who starts that pattern? Who holds it from raining here, but stops raining there? We have literally sat in our house at times before, and it being pouring down rain in our front yard, and nothing going on in the backyard. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I don't know if you've ever been driving down the road, and it's just sheets of rain coming down, and you literally drive, and nothing. That doesn't make sense. Except there's a God who gathers the water and holds the waters in His cloak. He captures this thing. So I want you to think for just a moment. The rain clouds that passed over us last week were from a hurricane that flooded the southeast and now flooded the northeast. And yet it passed over your heads and didn't even fall on you at all. And yet it flooded cities. Be overwhelmed by the God who holds the waters back, who holds these things in His hand. Be overwhelmed every time a rain cloud passes over you that it's not just a cloud. It is literally gallons, millions of gallons of water passing over your head, and yet it's held in His cloak. Be overwhelmed by the greatness of God. Who has established the ends of the earth? And this is so beautiful. Who, who stretched all this stuff out? When you walk out and you see all of nature, somebody established this. And the answer is nobody but God. And I love the last question he asked in verse 4. Because this is the question he changes. You know, every other question he asks in verse 4 starts with a who. This one starts with what. Right? In verse 4 he asks this question. What is his name? And what is the name of his son if you know? You see, what he's desiring more than anything is this God has a name. This God is personal, and I want to know Him on a personal basis. I want to have a relationship and a connection with this God who is so overwhelming, who holds the stars, who holds everything in His hands, who holds all this stuff. I want to know Him personally. And so if you know His name, tell me His name. And I love the fact that He doesn't just ask the God's name. Notice what He says. And what is the name of His Son? You want a beautiful picture of the whole thing? What does Proverbs point to? It points us to the Son, Jesus Christ. The final answer, uh, the, what it all boils down to is the source of wisdom points us to where wisdom should. The source of wisdom is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And the point of wisdom is to get us to this moment here. So that you are overwhelmed by a God who put all of this in motion. And you're overwhelmed by the Son of God who put His life into everything. You're overwhelmed by all this ability and wisdom that you have. And yet, what do you have the opportunity to do? To know Him personally. 
You see, that only happens because we know the Son. It only happens because it points us to a Savior who not only puts creation into motion and holds everything in sustaining everything, that we can be overwhelmed by the fact that God, through Christ and in Christ, made everything you see. But be overwhelmed not only that He made everything you see, but He made a way to Him. He made a way for you to know Him and have this personal relationship. If you want to be overwhelmed, look outside at creation and all it has. But you really want to be overwhelmed? Look at the cross and how much He loved you. You see, He loved you not just to be in heaven. He loved you enough to come down to heaven and to show you the reality of who God is, to show you what love looks like. And then He went back up to heaven, not just to build His own paradise, but to build your paradise. You see, because He wants to spend eternity with you. You see, the knowledge and all this stuff that we have points us to one place. And this is the crucial moment. This is what it comes down to. Do you have this relationship that Agar is so desperate for? Do you have a relationship with the one who spoke a word and life began? Do you have a relationship with the one who all knowledge points to the one where oceans start and where they end? Do you have a relationship with the one who set motion and time in space? Are you overwhelmed by the one who holds the stars and he can hold your heart? Are you overwhelmed by the one who calms the raging seas and can calm the storms in you? Be overwhelmed by the one who not just does all that, but he knows your name. The question is, do you know His? That's what He's asking. So be overwhelmed by Him. And it will make us know Him or want to make Him or make us know Him more. The more we learn about Him, the more we love Him, which means the more we want to learn about Him even still. And so be overwhelmed means that we're drawn closer and deeper to this relationship with Him, but not just with His Word. We want to know who He is more than we did yesterday, more than we did before. So the only source we have for that is to learn to trust His Word. And he tells us in verse 5 and 6, Agar makes it clear that we can trust his word and we should trust his word for two major reasons. The first one is that his word is inerrant. Now that may be a word you may not be familiar with. It simply means that it's without error. It's without falsehood, without mistake. The word that Agar uses in verse 5 is pure. So I want you to look there with me. Verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Did you notice the first part of that verse? Every word of God is pure. Not just part of it. Not just the parts we like. Not the parts that we're comfortable with. Not just the parts that we we feel we like this passage. Every word of God is pure. Every word in this text is there by purpose and on demand. Every word in this in this Bible is there and it's pure. And so we have this idea that it's there and it's intentionally there. There are no mistakes. There are no falsehoods. There's no error in any of these words. They're all there because the God who overwhelms us put them there. When I was teaching, um, one of my labs that I used to do with my students, my upper level students, called them, uh, calls them to uh, acid wash uh, uh, glassware, which means you take glassware and you wash it off and then you rinse it basically with acid. And the reason you do that is because even if you wash it with just soap and water, there's little particles. It's not, it's clean, but it's not pure, right? And so there are certain labs that you would do that didn't just call for a clean glass. 
it called for a pure glass, that all the impurities had to be taken out of it. And so there was a lab that I would do with my students, and, and they would always have to read the directions, and it would tell them, this is what you need to do. You need to acid wash this thing. And so by the time they got to about step number five or six in the lab, I could tell real quick who had paid attention to directions and who did not. Because if you got to a certain point in the lab and you didn't acid wash your, your beaker that, or your flask that you were supposed to be using, if you didn't acid wash it, then the little impurities from the soap themselves would interrupt the reaction. And so your reaction, maybe I don't remember the exact colors, your reaction would turn this kind of dark black color. Everybody else's would be this nice little green color. And so you've got these students that theirs is looking black and theirs is looking green. And so like in every lab, you look at it and you're like, one of us is wrong. Because both of us cannot be right, right? It cannot be this color and this color. One of us has, has done something wrong. And so immediately when they started comparing, they raised their hands, and I walk over there, and they're like, Mr. Rex, ours is this color, but theirs is that color. Which one is right? And my answer was simply, which one of you followed the directions? Well, we did. Of course we followed the directions. Well, then you didn't follow them correctly. What's step number one say? To acid wash. Oh, yeah, we washed it. Now, what you did was you cleaned it. You didn't acid wash it. You didn't get all of the impurities out of it to start with. And when you didn't get all the impurities out of it to start with, you started in the wrong situation. And so what he's telling his students, what he's telling all of us, is that every word of God is pure. There is not any error. There is not any corrections that need to be made. There are not any mistakes in this. If there is a mistake in the Word of God, it is not in the Word of God. It's in our understanding of the Word of God. It's in our interpretation of the Word of God. But His Word is pure. It has been acid washed. There is not an ounce of anything that should not be in there at all. And so not only is it inerrant that we can trust it, but it's also sufficient. And I love what he says in verse 6 this morning. He says, don't add to his word or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. What's amazing about this one passage, this one little passage is that it echoes so many passages throughout the Bible. In the first five books, Moses writes this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. He says, You must be careful not to add anything that I... Or excuse me, you must be careful to do everything I command you. Do not add anything to it or take away anything from it. Right? So the very beginning of the book, we have Moses writing the first five books. There he is. All the way at the very end of the book, in, Deut- in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, Jesus is talking here, and he says... I I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And so you've got the very beginning, you've got the very end. Here, Agar is telling us in the middle, and Paul even writes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the saying, Nothing beyond what is written. And the purpose is is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of the person over another. You see, as Christians, we need to speak where God speaks. But as Christians, let's be honest, there are times that we need to be silent because God is silent. Right? If you want to know the truth, we have to be very careful about when we say these things like, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, or the Bible says this. We have to be very careful about using that phrase for two reasons. First off, if you're going to say the Bible says it, you need to be a good enough student of the Bible that you actually know for sure that it says it. Because I can tell you that my grandmother and my mother, as lovely as those two ladies were, they told me a whole lot of the stuff that the Bible says that the Bible doesn't actually say. All right? 
So if you're going to use that phrase, you better make sure that you're true in what you're saying because what you did was you just added to the Word of God, which means you think the Word of God is not sufficient for you or for anybody else. But the other thing we need to be careful when we say the Bible says this, the Bible says that, is you need to make sure that you are taking what the Bible says here and taking what the Bible says here, and you're not forcing them together in some kind of interpretation that matches what you want it to say. You see, what he's telling us in 1 Corinthians is be careful that you don't go beyond what the Word actually says by trying to make it mean what you want it to mean. So we take something that's totally out of context here and totally out of context here, and we slam them together and we say, see, this is what the Bible says. Except it's not even talking about what you said it was talking about. And so we have to be very careful when we say those things, that phrase of the Bible says this, because the, we, at times we just need to step back and realize the Bible is completely sufficient. It is capable for speaking of itself. The warning is clear. Don't add anything to it. And if you do add to it, guess what? You're going to be the one who's proved to be a liar. And when you're proved a liar, it's not just your credibility that's on the line. It's everybody else's credibility that stands on the Word of God. And so if you're going to use the phrase, the Bible says, one, make sure the Bible actually says it. Two, make sure that you're being corrected by the Bible instead of using the Bible to correct other people in the way that it's not intended to be used that way. All right? Don't hurt your credibility and don't hurt the other credibility of the Christians around you. And then finally, I want to give you this. The last thing that is this point that we cannot miss is that throughout of all of this wisdom that God has given us through the book of Proverbs, through the world around us, it's simply this. That we must stay humble and we must stay dependent on Him. I love how he says this in verse 7 through verse 9. This is kind of this little section that's separated by itself. In verse 7, he's asking God, this God that he now knows, this God that now has a relationship. He says, two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Verse 8, keep falsehoods and deceitful words far from me. And here's the request. Give me neither poverty, or excuse me, yeah, poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. That's it. God, I don't, I don't need to be rich. I don't need to be poor. Can you imagine the prayers if we prayed that way? God, I just want to be content right here. And then the reason for it. I love the motive that we find in this very last verse of the section, verse 9. The motive for all of this, verse 9. Otherwise... I might have too much, and I deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or, I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. You see, there's this tendency that we have to fall into one of two categories. The tendency is that when things are easy, we tend to forget where the easy came from. When things are great, we tend to forget how great God is that, that put it all that way. I want you to think for just a moment, and this is a simple test for you. Don't answer out loud. When do you pray the most? When things are easy or when things are hard? Let me ask you another question. When do you involve other people in praying for you? When do you ask other people, hey, I need you to pray for this for me? If you're like most of us sitting in this room, and like I said, you don't have to answer that out loud. If you're like most of us, most of us tend to spend our prayer time when things are hard. We tend to involve other people when things are hard. Most of us are not willing to say this prayer right here. God, just let me be content. Let me have what I need and be content. Most of us are not calling our friends and our prayer partners and our accountability groups and saying, hey, things are going really great for me, and I just need you to pray that it stays that way right now. 
No, what we tend to do is when things go downhill, when things start to fall apart, that's when we get on the phone. That's when we start posting on Facebook, hey, things are terrible right now. And the reason we do that is because when things are good, we just forget about God. We simply say, well, who, who is this God? I've got everything I need. And often it leads to pride. And we didn't talk much about pride through the book of Proverbs. But man, let me tell you two verses real quick. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. And probably one of the more popular Proverbs is chapter 16, verse 18. It says, Pride comes before destruction, and an arrogant spirit before the fall. See, if I have too much, it causes me to do one thing. Take my eyes off of the one who gave it to me and turn my eyes back to myself. And when we do that, we tend to forget God in the process. And we lead ourselves to pride, which will always be followed by disgrace and destruction. And a little bit later in verse 9 of uh, chapter 30, I love what he says this. He says, but if I have too little, I might have nothing and still profaning the name of my God. You see the tendency for here is that life gets too hard. See, when life is going easy and life is going good, we, we forget about God. But when life gets too hard, we turn away from God. We either see God as absent or we see Him as unhelpful during those times. Or maybe we tend to think that God just doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about me in my situation that I'm in. And so I want you to notice His concern about stealing is not about stealing itself. In fact, it's not even about, I might get caught doing this. Do you notice why He's worried about stealing? This is a beautiful idea that he gives us here. If I steal, I might profane the name of my God. You see, here's a man who is so in love with this God that he now knows. That he's so concerned, not with him getting caught, not with him spending his time in jail, not with getting his hands cut off or whatever the punishment may be. He's not worried about that. The thing he's concerned most about is profaning or, or using the Lord's name in a vain way. That, that he curses the name of God and he causes other people to do it. And, and so he'll do something to bring dishonor on God. This is what loving God looks like. That you stop making excuses for your sin against him. And he says, listen, even if I'm starving, I don't want to mess up what people think of you. Even if I have to go down into my grave because I starved to death and I had too little, I don't want to fall into a sin and excuse it saying, oh, I was hungry and God didn't care me. You see, his humility and his dependence is motivated out of his view of the glory of God. And again, God and his glory is the most important thing for him. It's more important than the riches. It's more important than, than the excuses he might have for sinning. And so I want you to get this real clear. In the, if you miss this thing, the glory of God and the greatness of God in the pursuit of wisdom, then you've missed it all. You see, all the wisdom of this book of Proverbs, all the science books, all the philosophy books, all of that boils down to this simple question. Do you have the connection to the one who gave you all of that wisdom in, in the first place? You see, it's not about living a good life. It's not about how to make yourself more comfortable. It's really not about how to be a better parent or, or how, to, how to have your budget and your finances all in line. It's not about how to make your life better. It's about how you can be overwhelmed by the greatness of God. It's how you can be living for the glory of God to the utmost every single moment of every single day. And it comes down to Him and not to us. And if we miss that, then we miss the whole thing. It really comes down to this. All that we've spent time in through this book of Proverbs and preaching all these messages through the book of Proverbs simply comes down to this. Do you know Him? 
And do you live for His glory every single moment of every day? Let's pray together.